First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1? Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, We're looking again today at verses 3 through 14 of this first chapter, this opening uh, section of praise that the Apostle Paul has written for us here. And as we've pointed out the last few weeks, this is uh, just one long sentence in the original Greek that this book was written in. And uh, yet there is so much packed into this one sentence that we've spent three whole weeks uh, talking about it. Uh, Two weeks ago, we looked at verses 3 through 6 and saw that our salvation is from God our Father. Uh, Last week, we uh, looked at verses 7 through 10 and how our salvation comes to us through the Son of God, that everything that we have uh, is because of who we are in Christ. And then today, we're going to see that our salvation is also by uh, the Holy Spirit. We find that in verses 11 through 14, the last few verses Uh, in this opening section. And so let's read that uh, together as uh, we begin. And if we can, let's stand today as we honor uh, the reading of God's Word. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, the words will be on the screens uh, behind me. The Word of God says this, In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of of His glory. Father, today we thank You that we can gather in this place on this day, that we can praise Your name, that we can study Your Word, and Father, that we can hear from You. And Lord, we need to hear from You today. Would You speak to our hearts by Your Holy Spirit that we might trust in You, that we might trust in Your Son, Jesus, that we might live for the praise of Your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I came across the story many years ago of a woman named Miss Hetley Green. Mrs. Green has been called America's greatest miser. And that's because when she died, which was over a hundred years ago now in 1916, her estate, even at that time, had an estimated worth well in excess of $100 million. But despite her great wealth, it's said that Mrs. Green ate her oatmeal cold every day because she did not want to pay to heat it up. Uh, She wore the same old black dress and same undergarments every day until they wore out and then she'd buy another set just like that one. Uh, Worst of all, her son had to have his leg amputated because when he had an infection, she spent too long looking for a free clinic to take him to. It said that she eventually died of a stroke that was brought on by a heated argument she was having about the benefits of drinking skim milk. She had at her disposal more money than almost anyone alive at that time, and yet she lived as though she had nothing. 
And I'm afraid, church, that there are a lot of Christians who are like that. God tells us in these opening verses of Ephesians chapter 1 that if we are in Christ, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. In the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, we have more uh, spiritual resources at our disposal than we could possibly imagine. Everything that is Christ is ours. And yet, many Christians, because uh, of the influence of the world, because perhaps their own worries and doubts and fears have allowed their identity to be taken from them, they have forgotten who they are in Christ. And as a result, I'm convinced there are many spiritual Mrs. Greens in the church today who live day to day, spiritually speaking, like they are paupers, when in fact we are princes and princesses of the King. My prayer is that in these weeks, as we've been studying Ephesians chapter 1 together, that God has been reminding us of all that is ours in Christ, all of the reasons that we have as Christians to praise and to thank the Lord. And so in addition to all the reasons we've already seen the last couple of weeks, as we look at these final few verses in this section today, I want us to see three more reasons why we have to praise our God together. And while we will focus on the person of the Holy Spirit, because the work of the Spirit is emphasized in these verses, you can actually see all three members of the triune God even in these final four verses. And so first off, one reason we have to praise God today is because of the inheritance that we have in the Son. Verse 11 starts out with those very words, In Him also we have obtained an inheritance. The words in him refer to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Last week we talked about in verses 7 through 10, all that we have is because we are in Christ. It says in verses 7 to 10 that in Christ we have redemption. We're set free from our bondage and slavery to sin. It's in Christ that we've received the forgiveness of our sins. It says that it's in Christ that we've received wisdom and insight to understand God's redemptive plan of the world. It says that it's in Christ one day that all things in heaven and all things in earth will be made one. All of this is in Christ. And then in verse 11, Paul wants to add one more item to that list. And so he says, in him also we have an inheritance. Now, it's difficult to know the proper way to translate this particular verse. One way is, one option is to say that we are the Lord's inheritance. The other is that the Lord has given us an inheritance. Both of these translations are possible with the way the Greek text is written. And of course, both of those ideas are very much biblical. We read throughout the Old Testament that we are the Lord's inheritance. We are his possession. We are his treasure. But I believe that in this particular instance, the way that this is translated in the New King James is more likely to be correct. In this section, we're reading about all of the blessings that are ours in Christ, and added to that list is this inheritance that we have obtained in Christ. Now, what is our inheritance going to be? Well, the Bible says that we are joint heirs with Christ. And since everything in the universe belongs to Christ, everything belongs to those of us who are in Christ. 
Here's how Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 3. He said, Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. How many things are yours? All things are yours. He says in verse 23, And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Here's how Peter put it in 1 Peter 1. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, listen, to an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So the inheritance that we have in Christ, it says, is incorruptible, it's undefiled, it will not fade away, and it's reserved, it's saved in heaven for you and for me if we know the Lord Jesus Christ. In Him we have an incredible inheritance. Now, you would think that knowing that, right, that knowing that everything is ours because everything is Christ would change the way that we live our lives. And of course, it should change the way we live our lives. But sometimes, again, I'm afraid that as Christians, we forget. We forget all that is ours in Christ. We forget all that will be ours in Christ on that day. This past week, I was traveling out to California for uh, our convention, and uh, another uh, friend of mine was also traveling out to the same convention representing his company, and uh, we were flying back on the same flight, and my friend's company uh, had uh, booked him home with a first-class ticket, and of course, I have nothing against him flying back on a first-class ticket, but I was flying coach, and so I decided to, to give him a, a hard time about that. And so when I saw my friend over in the first-class line getting ready to get onto the plane, I decided I would text him. And so I texted him a, a little video from a comedian named Tim Hawkins. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with Tim Hawkins or have seen this little clip where he talks about the way airlines treat people differently who are in first class and who are in coach. And he says something like this. He says, you know, when they get ready to board the first class, they say, all right, at this time, we'd like to board all of our Sky Priority members, all of our Gold and Platinum Diamond members, all of our Plus Plus Priority members, basically anybody who has accomplished anything in your life, anyone who is successful... Uh, anyone who has done anything, we're just thankful that you're born. Go ahead and board at this time at your leisure. And then, you know, a few minutes later when they get ready to get ready to board the coach, you know, they say, all right, at this time we'd like to continue boarding with all of our unwashed masses, all of you gypsies and thieves. Go ahead and put your shoes on, grab your chickens, whatever crates you brought with you, and go ahead and get on the plane at this time. And of course, it is different, right, when you fly coach, right? I mean, you fly coach, I mean, I, I, the food is different. I mean, I walked uh, to use the restroom. I walked through the first class, and they were being served a very nice-looking, delicious, you know, hot meal. Uh, I got, uh, you know, a bag of uh, pretzels, you know, uh, <laughs> given to me. And, and, of course, the leg room isn't as much. People lean their seat back right in your lap, you know, and you've been there. You know. I, I'm convinced, though, that there are a lot of Christians who feel like when it comes to their lives— that they're stuck flying coach instead of first class. Now listen, I, I want to be clear about what I'm saying. I'm not talking about money here. The, the prosperity gospel is no gospel at all. It's the opposite of the gospel. The Bible doesn't teach us that if we trust Christ and live a godly life, that he's going to make us wealthy. In fact, I remember at least one man in the Bible that Jesus said he needed to sell everything that he had if he wanted to follow after Jesus. That's, that's not what I'm talking about at all. But in general, I think sometimes as Christians, when we look at our lives, sometimes many Christians feel like their lives are just so-so. 
They look at their lot in life and, and sometimes want to complain and we kind of want to whine about it, all the things in our life that we wish we could change, things about our situation that we don't like, things that we have to deal with. Even sometimes we get down about ourselves and our own shortcomings and how far we have to go to be like the Lord. Sometimes we feel like we're really not anybody all that special. We haven't done anything all that special. We haven't been too many places. We haven't accomplished a whole lot. You know, all we've been doing is just kind of our Christian thing. You know, we've been reading our Bibles and, and, and praying and, and worshiping and trying to lead our families right and trying to tell other people about the Lord. And we just, we've just kind of been doing our Christian stuff. And, and we start to think that all these other people who, who have done more in the world's way of thinking are the first class people. And again, we're in coach. But when we've begun to think that way, Christian, we've begun to see life through an earthly, worldly lens. When we start to think that way, we're sizing up the world the same way the world does. Paul told us in 1 Corinthians, God didn't choose that many wise, that many noble, that many mighty. And so we remember that we've been chosen in Christ, and even though we might feel like the coach passengers of this world, Christian, never forget who you are. Never forget whose you are. Don't forget that by the grace of God, you are a child of the King. That by the grace of God, you're a son or a daughter of the Almighty God Himself. And while most of the world tragically is on a path to an eternity in hell, again, by the grace of God, you are on a path to everlasting life. Jesus said, it is the meek who will inherit the earth. We may not look like all that much right now because we have this glory in jars of clay. But one day we will be just like the Lord. One day we will be with the Lord forever and ever. One day this verse says everything that is the Lord's will be ours. We have been blessed with an inheritance in Christ that is reserved in heaven for you and for me. And it would change the way that we live our lives if we would remember that. That's one reason we have the day to praise our God, our inheritance in the Son. Another reason we have to praise our God today is for the governance of the Father. You know, we saw the governing, sovereign grace of God at work in verses 3 through 6 at the beginning of this section of praise, but it shows up again beginning in verse 11. It says, In Him also we've obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise." Now, we won't spend long here, but one thing to notice is that while up to this point, Paul has been talking about all believers, all of those who have been chosen in Christ, beginning here in this passage, he begins to, to make a distinction. And, and that's why in verse 12, he says, we who first trusted in Christ. 
He's referring to Jewish believers, perhaps even including the 12 disciples of the Lord, along with himself and other early Jewish believers who in God's providence were the first to trust in Christ. But he's saying that because he wants to emphasize this other group that he talks to in verse 13 when he writes to the Gentiles, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. The point that he is making is that salvation has been given, has been made available to both Jewish folks and Gentiles. I know just a moment ago we were talking about first-class seating, but, but there are no first and second-class citizens in the family of God. No matter what our background is, whether it's Jew or Gentile, we've all been saved by the same Savior, redeemed through the same blood, saved at the foot of the same cross. And this passage moves. You can even see it in the pronouns. It moves from uh, the, the pronoun we to the pronoun you at the end to ours. Speaking about our inheritance that we all have, no matter what our background is. And, and this is something that he's introducing here, and we're going to see it emphasized even more when we make our way to Ephesians chapter 2. Back in verse 11, you see that word predestined show up. We saw the same word earlier in verse 5. And like we talked about then, the word predestined means to choose or to determine in advance. In verse 4, we read that God chose us who would be saved in Christ before the foundation of the world. And so from God's perspective, we are saved because of his sovereign grace because of his choosing and appointing of us to salvation. And this is meant to be a comforting and reassuring truth for us to take into our hearts that our salvation has nothing to do with us or what we would do or what we would accomplish. It has everything to do with the grace of God, that we are secure in his sovereign grace. Now, from the human perspective, of course, we are saved because we have believed in Jesus Christ for salvation. And like we talked about a couple weeks ago, in this same passage, which is really just one sentence, so in the same sentence, Paul also emphasizes that truth. In verses 12 and 13 in particular, you see that. In verse 12, he talks about we who first trusted in Christ. In verse 13, he writes, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed. And so again, from our perspective, what do we need to be concerned about? Well, it's really very simple. Have we done what Paul talks about here? Have we heard the word of truth? Have we heard the good news of Jesus, what he did for us at the cross? And have we trusted? Have we believed? in the Lord. I love the reminders that Paul includes here about what the message is. He says, it's a word of truth. As one put it, when we come to Jesus, we're coming to the one who is the truth. I love how he says, after you heard the word of truth. Think about who it was that you heard the word of truth from. I know as I thought about that in my own life, many people came to my mind. I heard the word of truth from pastors growing up in this church, from Sunday school teachers who taught me the Bible from an early age. I heard the word of truth from friends growing up in the youth ministry here. I heard the word of truth certainly from my mother. But on this Father's Day, I, I certainly want to thank my dad for sharing the word of truth with me. And it was my dad who one night when I was a boy, 
showed me through the scriptures and showed me verse after verse of what Jesus had done for me. And it was beside my dad that I knelt down in my living room and met my heavenly father for the first time. I heard the word of truth from him. And I'm, th- I'm thankful to have a dad who shared that word of truth with me. It's, it's truth that has changed my life. Not only is it called here a word of truth, Paul also calls it the gospel of your salvation. The word gospel means good news, and certainly this is good news. We need to understand that. It's good news that even though we've sinned against God, even though we deserve his judgment, that God never stopped loving us, that the Father gave us his Son, that he lived a perfect life, that he went to the cross and died for your sin, and he died for my sin, and he paid for it in full, and he rose again on the third day, and all who believe in him will be forgiven of their sins and will receive everlasting life. That is good news indeed, isn't it? And if you're already a Christian here today, Paul says to you what he said to these Christians here. He said, this is the good news of your salvation. And remember that. It's this good news that has changed your life, that has saved you, that has changed your eternity. It was all a part of the plan and the purpose of your heavenly Father to save you and to make you a part of his forever people. But you know, it isn't just our salvation that was a part of his plan. I love how comprehensive verse 11 is. Look at it with me one more time. It says, In him also we've obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him. Now listen, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Because God is sovereign, because our God is, control, is in control, nothing that anybody on earth can do will stop the counsel of his will from coming to pass. His word tells us how it will all end, and it will end exactly as he said. When it comes to the details of our individual lives, God is sovereign over them all, and he's using those details for a good purpose. That's what Romans 8.28 says. A verse I know many of us know by heart. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, to Christians, to those who are in Christ, God is working everything in your life together for good to make you more and more like the Lord. I know that sometimes the circumstances in our life are not good. Perhaps you're in a time like that. And it's easy in those times, even as believers, to get down in the dumps and to start feeling like everything's wrong in the world and everything's wrong in my own individual life and things are so messed up and things aren't going right. But from a heavenly perspective, that actually isn't true. If God is, as Ephesians 1.11 says, working all things together according to the counsel of His will, then as one person put it, from God's perspective, everything is going exactly as it should. Now, I don't mean by that that everything that everyone is doing is right. It certainly isn't. I don't mean by that that there is no evil in the world. Certainly there is a whole lot of evil in the world. But God's ultimate purpose for the world is still moving forward to the end that he has written for it. His ultimate purpose in your life and in mine as children of the king is still moving forward. And he is working all things together for our good, again, to make us more like Jesus. You know, there's a great deal of peace and comfort in really believing that. In resting in the sovereignty of God in our life. Again, sometimes we have to deal with things that we would not have chosen for ourselves. 
There are times, I'm sure, in your life where you've prayed for things and asked God to take things away, to, to change situations in your life, much like Paul did with that thorn in his side. He asked the Lord three times to take it away, but in that case, and perhaps in your own case, up till now, it has not been the Lord's will to take that away, to change that situation. Perhaps he's saying to you the same thing that he said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, and my strength will be made perfect in your weakness. It's important that we remember and understand that as a Christian, every difficulty, every trial, every ounce of suffering that we have to endure until we receive our full inheritance has a purpose. Paul wrote these beautiful words in 2 Corinthians. He said, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. We talked so far about two of the reasons why we have to praise God today, for the inheritance that we have in the Son, for the governance of God the Father, and third and finally, for the assurance that we have by the Holy Spirit. Look with me again at verses 13 and 14. He says, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, what does it mean to be sealed? Well, in those days, a seal would be placed on a document or on a scroll, and an impression would be made in the seal that was an identifying mark. In the case of royal documents, that, that stamp and the seal would be made with the king's signet ring pressed into the wax seal. Now, there were many purposes of a seal, but perhaps the simplest and the most obvious purpose is for identification. And when you see that seal, when you see that stamp, uh, it shows you who it came from. It shows you who it belongs to. And church, so it is with us. The Spirit's seal, first of all, identifies us as His own. Uh, of course, one key difference with all those other seals is that they're external seals. The seal that God has given to us is an internal seal. It's a seal that he has placed in our hearts by the indwelling Holy Spirit within us. Notice that this sealing is something that happens to all of us who have believed. I know that there are some who, who teach uh, something of a two-stage relationship with the Holy Spirit. Some who teach that when you get saved, you know, you get some of the Holy Spirit, but at some point later in your life, uh, you might get a little bit more of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you might get what they call a baptism of the Holy Spirit, but that isn't taught in the Bible. Now, in the Bible, it teaches us that when we are saved, we are at that time baptized in the Holy Spirit. This passage says that when we're saved, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit also. It happened when you believed in Christ. And that seal of the Spirit is an identifying mark that tells the world who you belong to. My grandmother on my mom's side is, uh, is with the Lord now. Uh, but was such a special woman, godly woman, made such an impact in my life. And one of the things that we all loved about my grandmother was the way that she would uh, put a mark, a label, on everything in her home. 
Now, she lived uh, up on a farm in rural Georgia, and I love that farm, one of my favorite places on earth. We take a lot of our family vacations up to that farm. It just seems so different than here in Melbourne. When you went up to that farm, again, everything was labeled. Uh, she would have bottles throughout her house, and of course, never, it was never what was in the bottle, what, you know, originally was in the bottle. It was always something else. And, and she, would, she would mark it, and she would mark it the same way. She'd put a little yellow masking tape across the bottle, and she'd write on it with a black pen, you know, what it was. She'd write sea breeze on there. How many of y'all heard of sea breeze? I never heard of it except for at the farm, but she sprayed that sea breeze on every cut, every injury that we had, and it hurt like the dickens. But, but I knew what was in that bottle. Because it was clearly marked. And it wasn't just bottles that were labeled and marked. It was everything. I remember when we had to move them from the farm and, and, and move them uh, back here closer to us. And, and, and we were cleaning out the farm. And it took days to do it. I mean, cleaning out. There must have been 20 freezers on that farm. And all the different buildings and things that were everywhere. And, and when we went through those freezers, of course, we'd find all the food. And all the food had been labeled. And uh, some of it had been labeled many years ago. I, I remember pulling out one container of food, and it said, Brunswick Stew, uh, 1982. <laughs> so, it was like 2005 then. That was 20-year-old stew. <laughs> I said, I'm probably not going to eat that stew. But there was no question whose that stew was, <laughs> because it had an unmistakable mark upon it. And Christian, God has put an unmistakable mark upon you. He has sealed you with his Holy Spirit. And listen, there is no confusion among any of the angels in heaven or any of the demons in hell whose you are. Because the seal of the Holy Spirit of God is upon you. It's, it's God's way of declaring to the world, of declaring to the whole created order, this one belongs to me. And of course, that seal of the Holy Spirit is also meant to be an assurance to us, for us to know that we belong to to the Lord as well. We know that apart from the Spirit, we would have never been able to believe in the Lord. The Bible says apart from the Spirit of God, we couldn't even have said the words, Jesus is Lord, and meant them. The Spirit of the Lord is the one who convicts us of sin. The Spirit of the Lord is the one who regenerates us and gives us new life. The Spirit of the Lord is the one who illuminates the Word of God. The Spirit of the Lord is the one who fills us with His peace and when we've experienced these things, we read in Romans chapter 8, these beautiful words from Paul who writes, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So the seal of the Spirit marks us. It's an identification to us and to the whole world that we belong to God. But another thing that a seal was used for back then was for protection. The same is true with God's sealing of us. The seal of the Spirit protects us until He comes again. Now, that's another aspect of, of how seals were used in ancient times. When people put their seal on something, perhaps uh, their mark on, on cattle, and in some cases even their servants as well, it was to indicate to whom that belonged. And it wasn't just for identification, it was for protection. As people saw that mark, as they saw that seal, they would know who that belonged to. And, and of course, for fear of reprisal, uh, they would leave it alone. And you see this idea of God's protecting Mark very early in the Bible. You might remember even in the story of Cain and Abel, that after Cain killed Abel, he was afraid that other people might kill him. And so he asked God for protection, and God placed a mark, a seal upon Cain. We read the same thing in Revelation about the 144,000 who will receive that seal, that mark of the Lord. 
And so it is with us. God seals us and protects us until the day of our final redemption. In Ephesians 4, in verse 30, we read, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Lord will watch over us and protect us until our final redemption and our final salvation. Now, that does not mean that nothing bad will ever happen to us. Again, remember the one who wrote these words, the Apostle Paul. As he wrote these words, he was imprisoned and chained up to a Roman guard. The same one who wrote these words just a few years after this would be beheaded for his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God's protection does not mean that we won't suffer. God's protection does not even mean that we won't be killed for our faith. But it does mean that nothing will be allowed to happen in our life that is not a part of God's sovereign plan for us. It also means that spiritually speaking, he will guard us and he will keep us all the way until we are home with the Lord. I love what Paul wrote in the last chapter of his last letter, 2 Timothy chapter 4, after he had already said that he knew he was about to die for his faith. He wrote these words in verse 18, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, Paul was confident that even through his death as a martyr, God would preserve him and God would bring his soul safely home to his heavenly kingdom. And we can have the same assurance and the same confidence in Christ. The Lord's seal of the Holy Spirit identifies us, it protects us, and then also back in Ephesians 1 and verse 14, Paul says the Spirit also guarantees us that God will bless us even more than he already has. Look with me at verse 14 again. It says, who, this Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. That word translated guarantee was used at that time in Greek as a commercial term. It was, it was used to refer to a first installment or a down payment that you would give when you were purchasing something. I know many of us uh, parents of middle schoolers have uh, one or more of our kids away at camp uh, this week at Ridgecrest at Centrifuge. In fact, today is their first full day of camp, and we need to continue to be in prayer. 75 students and adults who are away at camp this week and pray that God would move in their lives in a powerful way. But you know, again, if you're a parent of one of those kids, several months ago, uh, there was a deadline where we had to turn in $100 or so as a deposit. Now, why did Pastor Ryan ask for a deposit? Why does anybody ask for a deposit, right? It's to show that you're really serious about what is to come, right? You're not just saying you're going to go. Now you've got some skin in the game, right? Now you're you're really saying, I'm going to go, and I'm giving this down payment as a guarantee that the rest is going to come after that. How neat is it that God is saying the same thing to us, that the gift of the Holy Spirit, our present experience of the Spirit in our life, is a down payment of far more that is to come. Now, what we're going to experience in that day is going to be like what we're experiencing now. He's given us a taste of what is to come, But what is to come will be far more. What is to come will be far better. That's what this verse is saying. What you've experienced so far of God's glory, of God's love, of God's presence is the down payment 
of all that is to come. I want you to think for a moment about even just some of the experiences that you have had in your time of walking with the Lord. I want you to think about even the freedom and the joy you felt that first day you were saved to know that your sins had been washed away. And think about all those times when you've been reading his word or listening to his word taught or preached and you knew that God was speaking to you. I, I want you to think about those times when you were praying to the Lord and, and just telling him what was on your heart and you, you felt and experienced that peace of the Lord, the Holy Spirit that fills you. Th- think about those times when you've just been wrapped up in, in the love of God for you as one of his children. Think about those times you've been swept up in, in the wonder of, of worship and the glory of who God is. Think about all of that. And as one person said, think about all that, add it up and multiply it by a million times. Because what we've experienced so far, as good as it is, is just the beginning. So far, we've just heard the whispers of who he is. So far, we've just touched the edges of his robe. So far, we've only received the down payment. But then, then church, when we see him face to face, we'll receive the fullness of our inheritance, the fullness of our redemption, because we are his purchased possession. But right now, we can only imagine the things that God has in store. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, but as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. In light of everything that we've seen, church, all of these reasons that we have to bless and to thank our God, how should we respond to all of this? Well, first off, I would say if you're here today and you haven't yet trusted Jesus as your Savior, you haven't yet surrendered your life to Him, well, that is the very first step. So everything that we've talked about today are for those who are in Christ, those who have trusted Christ and have been filled with the Spirit of God. But that invitation is open to you. You know, we've talked about how what we've experienced so far is a down payment or, or a taste of what is to come. Well, God invites you, friend, to taste and to see that He is good, to experience His goodness for yourself. Now, that doesn't mean that he promises you an easy life or a problem-free life, but it does mean that he promises you an abundant life, that he promises you a life that is lived in relationship to your creator who made you and your savior who died for you, and there is no better life to be lived than that. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You're invited to come and experience him those of us here today who have already trusted in Christ, how should we respond? Well, how else can we respond but to praise our God together for who he is, for all that he has done? This passage, you know, it starts out with praise in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that theme of praise is woven through this entire section. Three times in these verses we read that phrase for the praise of his glory. We, we see it in verse 6. We see it again in verse 12. We see it again in the final words of verse 14, for the praise of his glory. That's what all of this is about. And so as forgiven, redeemed people in Christ, 
who have been chosen before the foundation of the world by the Father, who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, the Son of God, who have been sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. Let's praise Him, church. Let's praise the Father. Let's praise the Son. Let's praise the Holy Spirit, three in one. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Him, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Church, let's live our lives for the praise of His glory. I want to invite you to stand with me, if you would, as we worship the Lord, as we praise His name. And I want to invite you as we sing and as we praise, you know, maybe God would put it on your heart just to stay where you are and to sing and to praise the Lord. Maybe, though, God would put it on your heart even just to come and to kneel here at this altar for no other reason than just to take a minute and say, God, I just want to praise you. I haven't gotten over what you've done for me in Christ. And I want to praise you for what the Father has done, what the Son has done, what the Holy Spirit has done, who has sealed me. And you just want to come and give worship to the Lord. You can do that. The altar is open to you. Again, maybe you're here today and, and God is speaking to you and you want to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. You come and do that. You can speak with me or any of the other pastors that are here at the front and just simply say that I want to believe in Jesus. I want to put my life in his hands. You come as God speaks to you. Let's sing. Let's worship the Lord.